Be good. <laughs> You might be out there right now wondering to yourself, is this podcast just going to now be about this dude and his health problems and his sort of typical American childhood? Is this, is this what it's become? Just stories about this guy? Uh, I hope not solely. Maybe sometimes, for sure, but I hope not solely. Remember when we used to have guests, we'd go around the, this hemisphere and meet people and ask them dumb questions? Well, I did it again recently with our guest today, Michael Veneciano, a name which I've very likely just mispronounced because I have a terrible memory and I'm not real smart, but Michael is, and I'm sure he's told me how to pronounce that name twice. But anyhow, Michael runs a, uh, a mill, a sawmill, Ponderosa, Ponderosa Millworks, I believe it's called in this incredible collective of artisans called the O2 Artisans Aggregate. Anyhow, I will put links up on our website, mtp.dog, and you can look at, uh, at everything that Michael's up to, his Instagram, um, the, uh, the website to the Artist Aggregate. If you're anywhere near the Bay Area, you should definitely go check it out. People making sake, there's really good food people making biofuel and pet food and soap and um, incredible crafters and makers and creative people in this um, this really interesting environment, which we'll talk about in this podcast that you're about to hear. But, uh, it was a pleasure to be back in a recorded conversation with somebody. I've sort of, I've really missed being able to do this with people and to connect with, with new people. I'm very grateful to Dr. Uncle Chris Ryan for making this uh, this meeting happen. That's that's coming up here in just a second. I'll give you a brief update. Tiffany and I are doing all right. She's got a new job. She can actually work, walk to work from where we live. We actually live together again, which we had not done for six months. But now she's back here living with me. I live with her. Pele lives with us, or maybe we live with him. I think he might feel like we live with him. He sort of feels like he's in charge. But yeah, there's a... There's a lot of good stuff on the horizon. We got some big moves coming up that I will tell you about soon when I know more. But one of the things tripping me up at the moment is my health. If you listen to the podcast regularly, you will know that I've had some health challenges, a stroke and some surgeries. And anyhow, one of the um, expected outcomes or anticipated outcomes of this most recent surgery, oddball arrhythmias in my heart can uh, arise. I, so I found myself last Thursday just suddenly in atrial fibrillation. And my heart was just beating like a shitty old car engine running, you know, out of time. I don't know how else to put it other than to say I felt fucked up. I was out of breath, brushing my teeth extremely tired. I had to go to the emergency room where I hoped to be like cardioverted, which means they electrocute you out of that rhythm and put you back into normal sinus rhythm. That did not happen. I was 
prescribed a bunch of medications, which I feel like that's just kind of spiraled entirely out of my control at this point. I'm on all kinds of shit. Whereas before I just like took vitamins, you know. But anyhow, the medications kicked in on uh, Monday evening. Suddenly, just after five days of being in that rhythm, I was suddenly out of it. They were gonna stick a tube down my throat and look inside my heart and make sure I didn't have a clot and then shock me out of the rhythm. I didn't have to do it. That was all canceled because I suddenly came back in a normal rhythm thanks to these weird meds that I'm on that are kind of fucking with my blood pressure, which is not the funnest thing. But any rate, all that is to say that there are some certain, hopefully short-term health issues that I've got to work through in the near term. They say there's about six months of my heart healing over this new device that I need to go through before I'm all better. In the context of this healing and our whatever bullshit problems I have, I am reminded that I am fortunate that these are my problems. I am grateful that the worst thing happening to me at this moment is that I've, you know, got to take some weird medications and I don't feel so good. <laughs> there are worse plights to be experienced by a guy. Uh, I'm fortunate to have a beautiful soul and and creature in my life like Pele. I'm very indecently fortunate to have my sweet wife who I love and adore and is my pal. And I feel incredibly lucky to have this podcast to explore the world with and to meet new people and to connect things that I would never have thought of connecting before. And I'm going to give you a brief example, and then I'll shut up and give you Michael. But I, um, a little over a year ago, a good friend of mine committed suicide. And I wrote about it. I, I wrote about his life and what he meant to me and you know, processed what happened to this gentleman and how I felt about it through writing. And I published it on our website. If you feel like reading it, it's called In the Soup on our journal page. I just wrote it for, for myself to, to get it out there and, and express how I felt. And maybe someone else who dealt with a, a suicide in their life might find some benefit from it. I didn't really know what to expect from it, so I just wrote it without expectation and moved on. And in the recent, recent months, I've gotten all these emails from friends of his. My friend's name was Alex. And they were people who knew him at various points in his life. He was in his 70s um, and just lived all over the world. He'd, he'd done a lot. And I continued to get these emails from people who were like, man, I, you know, I hadn't heard from Alex in a while, and I feared the worst, and I found this thing that you wrote on the Internet when I Googled his name. And, uh, and then other friends would share it with other friends and, you know, suddenly I've had this just inflow of reflections and things I did not know about my friend. And it's just such a gift, man, to get something like that from the world that I would not have had Tiffany and I not put together this creative project, not decided to do this podcast and our half-finished journey to South America. It's just such an oddball outcome. This is a very rambling way of saying that I feel very privileged to have this thing to share with people and to, uh, to get feedback. So thank you, friends and listeners and family and 
strangers who I've never met. I love it. It's free. We're happy to do it. I don't care if you subscribe or review or like it. I just, I don't care. I just want to do this and meet cool people and share their stories. There are other podcasts out there, people who need your support, you know, that you can give them money and, uh, and get something great out of it. I'm all for it. But this one, it's on the house. Uh, so thank you. I feel like I get the better end of this deal. Until next time, keep doing fun and interesting things. Feel free to tell us about them if you feel like it. mtp.dog forward slash contact. Without further ado, here's our new pal, Michael. You and I met three, four weeks ago through Dr. Uncle Chris Ryan, right. who has connected us. Right, right. Uh, and there are a number of things that I want to talk to you about today, not right. the least of which is the place where we are. So if you at some point feel like the conversation's wrapping up and we have not talked about the place where we're sitting, we got to get there. You just interrupt me. Yeah. <laughs> interrupt I, yourself. I'm, <laughs> I'm letting you lead the way, but I'm happy to go into detail well we'll we'll get there but i think it's important before we do get there i I do want to talk to you about how you got here because you are not um as they say down south a spring chicken you're Mm. a full-grown man yeah you've uh you've gone a lot of different directions in your life i guess um it's better to start really at the beginning of my experience in what i guess you could call the green industry um We were very poor. My mother and father split up when I was three. My mother moved to Berkeley from from New York, from Italian neighborhood in Brooklyn, and she was struggling to make ends meet. So we were on welfare, and we didn't have allowance. So the way my mom would kind of give us a little money is if we did chores. So she would make a list of chores, and she would say uh, 10 cents for sweeping the hall, 15 cents for the living room, you know, 30 cents for the bathroom, and then 50 cents for mowing the lawn. And I, of course, went straight for the lawn because yeah, yeah. there's the biggest payoff. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Effort to reward. And very early, something clicked. I was like, wow, I can do this thing and I can make money. I can earn money doing it. And so I just couldn't wait for that grass to grow because I wanted to keep mowing it and I did as many chores as I can. Of course, I spent it all. I was 12. Yeah, I, was I went down the street and what got you candy. <laughs> I just, I blew it, but that wasn't the point. The right. point was I was earning money and I actually kept at it and a neighbor said, hey, what about my lawn? And I mowed that guy's lawn for $5, which was amazing amount of money at the time. And then another neighbor, and then I just started pushing the mower door to door when I was about 14 and I just started knocking on doors and asking people uh, if they wanted me to mow their lawn. And here's this little kid trying to hustle some work. And they were very receptive. So I had like a almost like an eight-block territory in every direction that I just would push the mower. I'd have the rake and the broom and the bag of hefty bags. And that's what I did. And by the time I was 17, I was able to afford a beater truck. And I, I got a little... Chevy with beat down truck. It was horrible truck. In fact, it was breaking down all the time, but I had a truck. Yeah, yeah. And I was painting plywood signs on the side that said, you know, Mike's hauling in landscape business. Yeah. 
And somebody pulled up in a pickup and said, hey, I need some help down the street cleaning up this job. So he's wrangled me over there and it was the owner of Ponderosa Tree Service, uh, which is the company that I've been working for or owning since that was like 1983, I guess, when that happened. And I worked there and then ended up buying the company in 1991. So I really just dove right into trees and tree work and, yeah. and made it my life. And, um, and only just retired from that like about three years ago when I sold the company and, and, and graduated to just milling logs and making furniture. So, yeah. And they still bring you their logs. Right. When I sold the company, part of the deal was I still get all the logs. Yeah. And one of the guys that I used to sell some of the premium logs to was the guy that owns the property we're on right now. <laughs> he would buy these logs from me and he would make these amazing Japanese, traditional Japanese homes out of them. Yeah. And I feel like I should have figured out the value of this wood so many years ago because I've cut down hundreds of thousands <laughs> of trees. My life, my company, when the time I retired, I had 25 employees and I just felt like I was no longer happy uh, doing it and I, I had started doing the milling and I found a lot of personal joy in m making beautiful things and it didn't hurt that it was actually even more profitable than running this giant cumbersome stressful company yeah. so I was able to sell my company which I never thought I'd be able to do and sort of graduate into this and and so that's how I got here so you've been in in Berkeley and in Oakland your whole life. I mean, I, I assume you've traveled. You've got the vibe of somebody who's done a lot of traveling and have worked elsewhere, but your life has been built here. Yeah, I used to just promise to take two international trips a year, and up until the time I got married and had a child, that I did. I would just fly somewhere, lay on a beach, snorkel, trek, whatever, you name it, right. two times a year for two weeks at a pop, and that was how I would recharge and, yeah. and get back into the swing of things. And so, yeah, I've, I've gone some places. Yeah. I, sorry to jump back to the tree thing, man, but, like, I, I was talking to you earlier about this. Like, I spent the day planting trees. A, a neighbor bought six laurels, and I had a buddy come help me. And it was it's just such gratifying work to, like, work the dirt. You know, I mean, just... Fortunately, it's rained recently, so the dirt wasn't like this hard clay that we can normally get around here. But, you know, we busted it down. You're, you're hauling dirt out, dig these huge holes, and you plant these young trees. They're maybe 10 years old, if that much, you know. And as I'm planting them, I'm thinking, I'm going to go talk to Michael tonight. You know, a man who has made his living on taking down trees that were either dangerous or dead or damaged or in the way, whatever they were. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about like you know, the stuff that you make with those trees, the things that I depend upon that are tree based. I mean, not not even just you know a obviously wooden object, but like things that are rendered from tree material. You know, like chemicals. And uh, you gave me soap that's made from mm, from trees. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so much tree stuff paper that uh, like as I'm planting these things, thinking about coming to talk to you, it's like man this little guy here that I'm putting in the ground, like what sort of weird journey is it going to go on and hardly ever leave this place? 
you know, for its whole life cycle, it's going to be in this one spot, and then who knows what's going to happen to it after. Did, did that sort of thing ever fuck with you or get in your brain? Like, <clears throat> I'm cutting down this tree. You know how old it is. Like, you know, you're an arborist, are you not? Yeah. Like, yeah. You would, when you would count the rings and look how big and old a tree was, did that sort of thing? Well, I feel like I have sort of a karmic connection with trees and I love trees and yet I do, uh, I'm personally responsible for, for cutting down, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of trees because I did it all my life and I had big crews and every day we went out and did this. And when I'm looking at a tree that I think is really nice and the customer wants me to cut the tree down because it's dropping leaves on the patio I do everything I can to discourage that from happening but I also realize that you know before there were homes and urban forest here these were largely rolling grassy plains with clusters of oaks and bays in the little valleys near the creeks and everything so we sort of made this man-made urban forest and the trees grow old and they eventually die and whether one of them that shouldn't come out early has to come out early I don't really feel like uh, like I'm doing some horrible thing I'm planting yeah. new trees and yeah. I'm caring for other trees and in general making the urban forest healthy so right. some of that unfortunate you know tree loss is part of the equation but I think I've done quite a bit to save trees that the customers had decided they thought they wanted out and then changed their mind after right. consulting with me about it. And, and it's the, there's the living life cycle of a tree while it is alive and growing. And then there's the rest of its life cycle, which can be so long. I mean, just, I was thinking today, we were, um, we were looking at the house where I'm, I'm staying. It's over a hundred years old and it was made from redwoods that were harvested pretty early on you know those big ones those big ass redwoods that are just no more yeah and 95 percent of them are gone that's heartbreaking yeah 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 and that like that massive deforestation of ancient like i don't want to get too deep in it but like you know these these creatures are are making decisions man if you stand in an ancient an old wet redwood grove like those are beings that are making conscious decisions whatever consciousness i don't know but they, you know, like the way they survive fires and floods and, you know, they deal with invasive species and all these things. It's, it's kind of incredible. And to think that like the house that houses me and the people I love and all this stuff is made from that, you know, like that these beams were milled, God knows where, maybe that thing was cut down and floated down a river, you know, pushed into the bay and hit a mill. It, it, it's just overwhelming to think of, you know, that. Yeah, this thing lit, may have lived. I mean, how these crazy old redwoods get? I mean, hundreds and hundreds thousands of, of thousands. years, yeah, even. Just yeah, outrageous old thing that was. Now it's just like I poop under them, you know, like asleep. <laughs> you know, like it's just this thing that like houses a bunch of nitwits, you know, that are trying to make it. I mean, it's just such a bizarre thing to think about that afterlife of a tree. But I think revering that is important because I think people just take it for granted that they're trees and they're building materials and they don't really feel that mm-hmm. history and that depth and the importance that trees have for us as a planet and yeah. for our habitations and for our furniture. Yeah, and just the sheer beauty of it. Like right now we're sitting under this thing. Are, these are not living trees. These are living trees. These yes. are two living trees. Yeah. So there's a table 
built around these two living trees. No, there's oh, these are six. all living trees. They're all living Holy trees. Shit, that is... one looks like it might not have made it. Yeah, there's a dead one. <laughs> there's this is a whole canopy of living trees. And wow, green green on the top, but we're and and they all grow through the table. Yeah, they're growing through this table, and is it like an espalier or like a yeah, trestle kind of thing? A, yeah, espalier or yeah. Or, it's really, really cool effect that we can, while they're alive, shape them into art yeah. or into something functional and beautiful. There, there's hardly any point of a tree, a tree's life to me that isn't somewhat gorgeous. There was this tree when I lived in Memphis. Um, I was, I don't know, 18 or 19 when I first noticed it. And it was outside of a parking lot of an Indian restaurant in Memphis, Tennessee. So all these anachronistic That's things unusual that, that don't itself. make any sense, right? <laughs> And I would, every single time I went there, I would stop and admire this tree because it must have been hit by lightning or something. It was so gnarled and burned out and scooped and hollowed out, but it was still alive. It had like a branch, you know, from the main trunk that went up to a single, you know, uh, branch. And and that branch did everything it could. I mean, it put out this crazy display of leaves. It was just, I was like, how in the hell? I mean, it looked like it half a tree and it was still alive and still trying to throw seeds and make a life for itself or a sprout will emerge from a little crack in a rock and force it open and you know these trees the roots they just cannot be denied they're just so strong and they're going to succeed (laughs) absolutely incredible creatures man and it's you know uh, I've I've talked about this with with other people before but like what we perceive as a conscious thing that makes decisions or is or is up to stuff is very it's limited by whatever we're paying attention to at the moment like i i feel like very often um the mycelium is doing things that we don't understand that is a whole layer of communication with other species us included that that just the this fungus growing in the ground is up to stuff. It's how the trees talk to one another. Uh, I feel like it even influences how things that happen in our world that we don't necessarily know. Hmm. So like when I look at a tree or I look at, you know, a table or any of these given wood elements, I I don't know. I'm, I'm always wondering like, what, what was it saying? What was it up to? What did it get its final message across? Did it care? Did it, you know, Hmm. I don't know. And, I look at what you've done and what you're currently doing with all this wood. You're not cutting it down anymore. You're milling it and you're turning it into, you know, furniture and countertops and making beauty, functional beauty for people and adding to that story and being a part of that. Like, I don't even know what you call it. I mean, it's like a, it's like a weird narrative Hmm. and you're just like a, like a part of that that story that maybe it's the tree like i'm sorry to be rambling but like no. you know like michael pollan did you read any of his books like no. the botany of desire i want to after hearing chris talk about he's <laughs> he's an incredible writer but his he, he took a look at um like an apple tree and some bees and it looked like you know the the bee was uh you know, making all the decisions and the apple tree was at its beck and call, but really the apple tree was the one calling the shots and it was beckoning the bees to it. And the bee was doing the work for this apple tree mm. and it kind of like twisted the, yeah, yeah. It like twisted the perception of, all right, well, who's, 
who's doing what? Is it totally symbiotic or is it like one species got an edge on the other? I feel like trees do that same sort of thing. And you are in this like position where you're, I don't know if you're the bee in that scenario or what, but like you're, you're making these things continue to live on, Mm. you know? Um, I don't know. I'm maybe overly aggrandizing the, the scope of the work, but I just, I feel like it's such a cool thing to be able to do, you know, that shelter art, functional stuff coming from these living beings that are just among us and, creating the air that we breathe and making our planet habitable i feel so incredibly grateful that i get to do that i mean i i will take a log and and most times it's a log that nobody else wants i mean there are other sawyers around that they want the walnut trees and the elm trees and the maple and the really high-end hardwoods i will take a eucalyptus log that nobody wants and I will mill it up and just to see it transform from this waste product to this incredibly beautiful (laughs) object that Mm -hmm. gets to enrich our lives and you get to see it and think about it it, Mm -hmm. how how it lived like I just feel so honored to be able to be a part of that totally and I feel like a tiny part of it I feel like the tree does all the work and I'm getting all the credit for the furniture. <laughs> uh, I, I've sh- I've seen your hands, Ben. You you do plenty of work. You do plenty of physical. This is a real physical work. Like if if you're listening and you've never seen a sawmill or anyone operate one, just uh, you've you've put me on this like weird YouTube rabbit hole of like <laughs> sawmills and shit. So yeah, just take a look at any YouTube video of someone milling like. I watched one, a guy in Alaska who made his own sawmill out of like chainsaws and, you know, these steel bars and like, it's crazy. Like to take a tree and turn it into two by fours is so much work. It's so much work. It's, it's really incredible. But remember, I came from a career where I was climbing trees every day and often spending seven or eight hours off the ground with a chainsaw in my hand swinging around from limb to limb and physically tying off limbs and lowering them down so for me this is actually way easier (laughs) physically well well, take me uh, let's go back so you're in your truck michael's landscaping business and hauling around (laughs) then you you start working with ponderosa like i've had a lot of little i've had a lot of jobs yeah like just that entry level where you're gonna do this shit that no one else wants to do, the craziest, dangerous, grossest, whatever it is. So what was it like for you when you first started? Well, I was already a super hard worker. Like even though I was pushing my mower from door to door, I also made it a mission to just, just rage on that lawn and mow it and rake it and sweep it and get it in the bag and get paid and move on. I was just focused on like going after it. And so when I went to work for Ponderosa tree service, I was cleaning up under the trees and watching the climbers up in the trees, but I immediately wanted to be the guy up in the tree. (laughs) I can imagine. And so I started bugging the owner to train me and he did not want to train me so quickly because you gotta, you gotta pay your dues kid. But he allowed me to take a harness and a rope home with me, and I just started going to the neighborhood parks and tossing my rope 
up over the limbs and pulling myself up and getting higher, higher up in the tree and learning to just be comfortable climbing up and down the tree. And I loved it so much that I put all my extra energy into that. So when he finally allowed me to trim the trees for the company, I went from ground man to foreman in the space of two years. Really? I just was so focused. And then... That's unusually fast. Yeah, because I... That was all I thought about. Wow. I just want to, this is what I love to do. And, and I've always been a really, really hard worker. And because I'm a hard worker, the people around me work hard with me. So right, I have right. success in that area. I'm a terrible businessman. I'm like the worst <laughs> businessman and only have succeeded because of that hard work, not because of my administrative acumen. Well, there's administration and then there's leadership which are, I think are two very different things. And you've got leader qualities to me. I've only known you a little bit, but I've, I've seen, like your energy level is the level of energy you need from someone who's going to lead you. Mm. You know what I mean? Like if someone, if you're going to count on someone to, to make a, a variety of shit happen, you, you, need, you don't need an administrator. Mm-hmm. The administrator just makes sure, make sure you have like, you know, the, the the harness and the job title and you know the manifest and all that stuff but a leader is going to make sure that we get it done we clean it up correctly everybody's safe like you've got those kind of qualities i can tell right away i think it's just because i love doing it and i still love working really hard i walk in the door from work every day covered from head to toe with sap and dirt and soot and you know go yeah. straight for the shower and I, you know, get up and do it again every day, pretty much every day. I mean, that's, that's to me, the sign of, of love in a gig is that you'll just do it over and over and over again. And like last week, I was meant to come and inter- or interview. I hate saying interview. I was going to come hang out with you last week. And I felt like shit. I just felt terrible. And I, I didn't want to, I literally did not leave my, I think I went outside to walk Pele at one point in the day. And then never left the house again. Like, I never went back outside. That that shitty. But, like, I was thinking about... I mean, I've, I've worked for myself a lot. I still kind of work for myself. And that, like... The drive that you feel to do your own thing... Like, you know, I'm laying there with this headache thinking, Oh, my God, I don't want to go anywhere. But, like, you know, there were days when I felt like that. And I just... I would. Yeah. I would go out. And I'd go to my shop. And I would work. Like, I just, even though I felt shitty, even though I was, like, not feeling right, like, I know I got to get this done. There's no one else pressuring you. It's just you, you know? Yeah. But you're going to do it. Well, one of the lines I love to quote, and I can't remember how long ago I heard it, but it still rings true. Entrepreneurs are the only class of people that are willing to work 80 hours a week to avoid working 40. (laughs) And that's it. I've always wanted my freedom, so I was willing to just go after it and then... Uh, hopefully take some time off and, you know, make, make, uh, have the freedom to do that. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've certainly got a lot of freedom, even though, you know, you're, you're here a lot in this, this building. You, you have guys that work for you now. How many guys work with you now at the mill? I have six employees right now. Full time. Five of them are full time. One of them is part time. Wow. That's cool. That's another crazy thing to think about. It's a about. drop down, though, from 25. When, yeah. When you have 25, there's so many interpersonal problems that sure. you have to spend a lot of time dealing with that, and, and we don't have that here. The, the part of, like, 
I always had like when I had my small business, everybody was like kind of a gig worker. <laughs> that sounds really slumlordish and shitty of me, but they all had full time jobs. But right. on the weekend, I would pay them cash. They would come in ten ninety nine, you know. And uh, I was never responsible for anybody else's income but my own. And there's something about like it's analogous to that life cycle of the tree that like you're you're not just responsible for your own thing you're you're helping someone else put food on their table and pay their rent and do the things they want to do and have their freedom that's a really cool thing and a heavy responsibility even though it's just six five or six people it's still like but they're kind of like family they kind of become family when you work that closely with them and and if they having trouble a month and they need a big advance or their truck broke down need to buy a new truck of always been there to help them or you know and i feel like that's how we do it we do it together and so if the company's doing really well then i can give bonuses to everybody because the company's doing really well if it's struggling i'm trying to do everything i can not to lay anybody off you know we we work we work it out yeah i mean you were just telling me when we first sat down here to a delicious pizza yeah. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Was it spinning dough? Thank spinning you. Spinning dough. dough pizza I'm going to go back. <laughs> so uh, I was watching that guy, one guy by himself making pies, taking orders, doing everything. You know, he's struggling. We're, if you're listening to this sometime in the future, presumably we've survived the pandemic of 2020, but we're in the middle of it right now. I don't even know if this is the middle. I don't know what part of it is, but. Might be the beginning for all we know. Yeah, yeah. Like your intestines are really long, but eventually you hit the asshole. I don't know which direction we're going. <laughs> we're somewhere being either digested or slowly shit out of this this terrible pandemic. But you were talking to me about your your woes with and your worries with like paying your employees and keeping them on deck, even though that the economy things have slowed down and there's not nearly demand at the moment for what you guys are doing yeah. but you've 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 dug in and you're still taking care of those guys that's really hip i mean fortunately because we make lumber in addition to just furniture wood uh we're classified as an essential business so we've been allowed to stay open but imagine all the people who are not in that classification and are really struggling right now like i don't know what this country is going to look like six months from now when you know our our leaders don't take care of them you know i just don't know what it's going to look like it's it's scary well you've you've been in government like local is it local or state local very very it's hard to even call it government um i served as parks commissioner for the city of berkeley in the 90s and i think i've I, about eight years uh, but it's more like a group of people that get together and try to just figure out what's best for the parks and what? recreation programs so <laughs> that, I don't want to call it government that because should, that's the essence of what government is meant to be I mean that, that, that that's a, an example of it working well and doing the thing that government was meant to do in the first place is you know that's absolutely would, true but when you think of government you think of these two opposing yeah. polar opposite craziness <laughs> things going on and we didn't have that no even though there was some of um differences in ideology in the different council districts we had real harmony around the decisions and we did a i think a really good job of engaging the community and having meetings that were really fruitful. So, yeah. so 
that was really rewarding. But what's interesting is I got tired of it because no matter how much energy you put into something and you craft the best solution to a problem or the best legislation for a park, there's still a certain number of people that are just going to think you are evil yeah. for deciding the that dumbest. the way you did. Yeah. You are just the worst. Totally. And, and totally. That, that wears <laughs> you down after a while. Yeah, yeah. I, I did it totally. and I loved it and it was a great experience. But yeah. I wonder, you know, like thinking about that, like Berkeley's Parks and Recs Department, right? I would imagine most of those people are fairly passionate and they see this precious resource, right? They, they look around at Berkeley and they're like, man, this is a special place. Like they go up in the hills and then they see the view, you know, like they're reminded, oh yeah, man. We've got these beautiful parks and these just gorgeous place and intellectuals and we're we got to take good care of this man so there's like this common goal right but if you think about it at the highest level of government you've got everything like berkeley's in there new york's in there southern iowa northern washington all these beautiful incredible precious places are all under your care mm. and there's no I, I don't ever get the sense in looking at the behavior and the news that come out of my government that anyone holds this as actually precious rhetorically. Yeah. They, they say how precious, you know, our nation is, but I don't get the sense that anybody genuinely feels the preciousness of our, our place, this, this world, this land, this country. I mean, I think in some ways government on that level is inherently flawed because on my level, nobody was trying to pay me off to, craft legislation favorable right. to their store that was next to a park like that and probably even in the city council level and even maybe even the county level maybe not a lot of that happens but when you get further up I think yeah. the desire to remain in that prestigious powerful position makes you vulnerable to yeah. to and, and I and I don't even think that these are bad people. They've, they've figured out a way to justify it to themselves that they're actually really doing the right thing and they really believe it's the yeah. right thing. Yeah. But it's clear to the rest of us that the right thing is not right. being you know, done. So, right, right. Well, that's so. the thing about a villain. There are no real, like everybody thinks they're the good guy. Like mm. in the cartoons, yeah, the villain's like, ah, my <laughs> evil plan. <laughs> but no one ever is like, I think I'm going to fuck over the American people with my evil plan. It's never that, you know? I mean, like, when you were in the Parks and Rec Department, did you feel powerful in any way? Um, I never thought about that. I mean, what I felt was really good that we worked hard to come up with some really good yeah. solutions. Um, just to give you a breakdown of how it works is the city of Berkeley is divided into eight districts. And each of the council people in that in the respective districts appoints a commissioner, and then the mayor appoints a commissioner. And I was appointed by the mayor, <clears throat> a woman named Lonnie Hancock, who ended up becoming our state senator. And I also ended up getting elected to be the chairman of this body, which was interesting because I was the only high school dropout on that commission. I mean, mostly they were quite a bit older <laughs> right. and the degrees and, you know, yeah. relevant to this position. And I was just a kid who, when I got off 
drugs at a fairly early age. I just went into sports as a way to just get out of it. And so I was using the parks regularly, but I also knew about park maintenance and trees because of my career. And I also knew what at-risk kids needed in terms of their, you know, using the facilities and, and, and finding things to do that were alternatives to that. So my personal experience became very relevant and valuable to that body. And I didn't, for the, for, for a moment, think I was powerful. I was just happy that I could bring those experiences to bear and that we could, you know, make some positive changes. I also served in an organization called the Berkeley Community Partnership, which was a steering committee set up to govern the spending of $7 million of youth drug prevention money. And the same kind of thing happened. I, I just had so much experience in that that I was elected chair of that body. And we put money in the hands of people that were doing some really good things to keep kids off drugs. And I just felt so happy that we could be effective in that because so often government is just not effective at, at doing the kind of things yeah. that they set out to do. Well, I think part of it is because they don't use any of the words that you just used to describe their job. Did you say, you know, you didn't feel powerful. You felt lucky or, you know, happy to do that. And like you have a clear passion, that sort of thing. <laughs> you just never hear that from a politician now unless it's some rhetorical device to, you know, it's just not a genuine thing. Well, I'll tell you, I, I took a break from working for Ponderosa Tree Service because the city of Berkeley was hiring for a line tree trimmer. And so I took the test and I, I won the job. And I began working as a government employee for the city of Berkeley doing tree work. And it was the worst experience of my life. Because I came from the private sector where we were really just working super, super hard. And all of a sudden I find myself in a job position where everybody is very effectively escaping any real form of hard mm. work. And so what I realized is, at least in this particular case and probably a lot of cases, government jobs generally are no fun. And the, the bureaucracy that surrounds these things, I just think are just a lot less exciting than a lot of other more rewarding careers. Yeah. So I think when you're just putting the time in and you're getting your benefits and you're living, I just don't think you're motivated to really go the extra mile. In fact, the people that do get go the extra mile are usually the people who get bonked on the head. They end like, up in the private sector. <laughs> stay quiet. Do what we want you to do. Don't make any ripples. So I, there's some inherent flaw in that. Yeah, we got a lot to work out, man. We got a lot to work out as a as a thing, as a creature, in the way we govern ourselves. But man, I mean, do you ever go to the DMV and see someone incredibly happy about getting your your vehicle registered? Yeah. No, they're, they're, I, I have encountered some hilarious, sardonic, dickish, like funny dickish people you know but no there never have i experienced any joy or passion for car registration i think i may have seen some perverse joy in fucking you over yeah, but that I, I, I've, i'm almost certain i've seen that 
you know which is like I, I get dark humor i like it i think it's funny but it's like not so funny when you're on the other end of it you know but yeah no I, there's a lot to work out but i i like your your take on it you know that you you did it you gave it your all you tried and then no matter what happens somebody is you know that's the good thing about one-on-one customer interaction you can just sort it out like oh you're unhappy well let's tweak this deal you're happy now okay on i go that when you're trying to please you know the populace you're gonna someone's not gonna like it you know and i'm trying to i have this habit of just taking on far too much and then when I've taken on far too much, I can find other things to take on. And right now, one of the things that is important to me is that, you know, my shop is in probably the epicenter of the homeless crisis in California. West yeah. Oakland has homeless encampments everywhere. And they're on our street and they're down the street. I mean, the size that you'd have to really drive through it to see. It, it started reminding me of some of the big favelas in Rio, and they were just much nicer than what we have. Wow. And somebody sent me a thing that said they're setting up a homeless advisory commission and that I should consider being a part of the commission. And I talked to some friends, and I talked to my mom, and she's like, don't do that. You are going to get immersed in that, and you're going to just like focus on that, and you're going to spend all your energy on that, and you just... You, you got to be with your family. You have to, yeah. other things you have to do. Yeah. And so I wrote them and I said, look, these are my qualifications and I will, I will consult with you and I will give you, I will share all of my knowledge with you, but I don't want to be on the commission. On the board, so. yeah. I get, I mean, that's, that's the level of self-awareness I think you come to with age. You know, your ambition when you're young, you're like, I want to be a part. I want to be involved. I want to help. I want to do. But then as you get older, you realize like your high, the highest and best use of your effort, you know, the, is not just saying yes to everything and to jumping on every board or every project. It's knowing where you can fit in, you know. So that's a level of. I, I feel like even though you may still want to probably be involved in that, and I don't blame you because it is monumental. I mean, the, the the scope of this this crisis is is it's heartbreaking to drive through this and see this, you know, what's happening to people. So I know you, you want to be involved in it, but I feel like you still are involved in your way. I'm in the sense that I mill lumber from trees that people are throwing away and I'm willing to mill lumber and train people to mill lumber and to make beautiful, respectable, tiny homes that can provide some dignity to people who are living in the most heinous conditions and we actually sort of proposed a you know a version of this and the city said oh the, that's not code I'm sorry we, we, we right. can't do that and so it's just like really you're going to run up and get, so is code yeah. a tent that leaks and rodents are getting into I mean what what's better is it does it have yeah. to be code really or is this just a lot better so I uh, in that sense, I think government is working against our yeah. interests as a community, but it's such a big problem that nobody really wants to really talk about the solution because there's no good solution. Right. Right. I mean, this is, it's that thing where, um, 
like a village, a dignity village. Did you ever hear about that one in Portland? No, but I I love that idea. Yeah. There was one, a guy, I think Jack Tafari or something like that was his name. Uh, we had a mutual friend. I think he's since passed away, but I had a friend in, in Portland who worked with him. And they um, they built a community for the homeless. And there were rules. There was a regulating body. But they just housed people in a way that was dignified. That hmm. you weren't sleeping in the street. You weren't shitting wherever you could. You could shit in a place where you could flush it and it would go away. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There was a whole... There's so many things that we take for granted in our lives that, you know, the people who live, you know, without a house mm. are just desperate for, you know, and would be so much happier with just some, I mean, not even, not, never mind convenience or comfort, just like, man, I'd like to be able to not shit in the street, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, that Dignity Village project and and what it can offer people. That's that's a band-aid. Even it, it, its best, its highest and best expression of a dignity village or something mm-hmm. that you build for the homeless. That's putting a band-aid on top of something that's, that's bleeding. That it's not just that it's cut open. There's some other thing happening that's causing that bleeding. Mm-hmm. So it's like you, yeah, you have to do what you can to put the band-aid on. But when you talk about the scope of this project, you could build a tiny house, ten a day every day for the next year and it would not well it wouldn't stop people from falling off of wherever they are and into that i mean whether it be dealing with some chronic pain and taking you know prescribed medication and eventually needing so much of that that you are hooked and you can't get off and so you lose your life because of that or uh, maybe you're making your way through life, but your car breaks down, so you no longer can get to work, and you can't afford to buy a starter. So you're stuck, and you lose your job. And next thing you know, you're living in your. I mean, it's like there's right, so right. many avenues, so many things, and there's no safety net. There's it's it's so. Yeah, the band aid is digni- digni- dignified place to live for someone right. that ends up in that, but the solution is closer to how to kind of keep people. From getting there, and it really goes all the way back to very early childhood and whether there's any nurturing going Mm -hmm. on. And parents sometimes are working so many hours that they just can't nurture their children, and the children need nurturing, otherwise they act out and they get a little crazy and they... Do risky things, and and so it's yeah. a it's a it's a really difficult problem. People feeling isolated, Profound, yeah, yeah, profoundly difficult problem. Yeah, because how can we as a society really nurture a child and a family that weren't you know that doesn't come out and ask for that or need it or and, and we don't have the ability to do it now anyway. So right, right. And then there, it's another tricky thing. You're in in West Oakland, and you're a white guy. Um, and you know you've you've done all right for yourself. You've got a good business. I ran into this in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, I got a, I got asked to manage a grant. There was some grant money that the city was doling out, and we were trying to help. I ran a nonprofit organization, mm-hmm. working in renewable energy, uh, green tech, all that type of stuff, and uh, in, environmental crises, mm-hmm. <laughs> of which there are many in Memphis, Tennessee. And one of the areas that was just I thought 
egregiously underserved and I mean disgustingly um, uh, just overwrought with with chemical pollutants and bullshit just exploited beyond measure was a very poor community of African American people that live right next to the largest petroleum refiner in the world as uh, Valero at the time they had a big refinery in Memphis and so I had this grant money and I went I had this project that I was thinking about doing and had all these ideas and uh, this lady sat me down who lived in that community she was really hip super hip lady she's like listen I know you're coming in here with good intentions right but you're coming in here with a cape on it's like what do you mean she's like we don't need a white savior to come in and tell us what we need yeah I was like can you explain I didn't I was just ignorant I was like can you explain that to me I don't I don't quite get it you know I was, I was young I was like in my 20s yeah she's like look you know you're, you're you don't live here you don't know you don't know what we need you know like yeah you've never spent the night here you know you just think like okay we'll put some so- new soil in the ground we'll plant some trees and try to get some of the stuff up like the, what, what do people need here you know like you see anywhere you could buy a vegetable see anything you can drink that doesn't have sugar in it mm. you know you can't drink the water here you know like she's like what don't don't come into a place where you don't know the thing and try to tell people what they need just because you have some sweet ideas that you picked up in another state <laughs> don't don't do that for yourself she's like i don't want you to embarrass yourself That's and it was like what the that was thing it was so cool yeah and it, it made me realize okay i've got to find the right way to do this yeah where i'm not i'm not doing that i don't want to be like this savior complex guy I know I'm not suggesting that's what you're doing, but yeah. you have to navigate that here. But it's almost you're in a situation here where it's so desperate and so immediate that tiptoeing around that type of stuff is almost like it's time. It's like okay, look, we we just need solutions. We need- yeah, I I I I haven't encountered much of that personally, mm-hmm. and I think it has a little bit to do with. You know, I, when we when I was four years old, from the time I was four to the time I think it was about twelve, we lived in a pretty bad neighborhood in Berkeley. At the time, it was very bad. I, I think our house got robbed six times when we lived there. Just, but my friends were African American, and still, two of my best friends are African American. I have a big circle of African American friends, and I think when you are around people who have experienced these racial injustices for long enough, you feel more of it than if you come in from the outside and don't really know that. And I think you, you, you build, there's some kind of loyalty that I have with my African American friends that I don't have with other friends. There's, and I've just sort of always felt like I was in the trenches with them. I was like, clearly I'm not. If, if, if right. I, I talk about my white privileges when we were stealing something or robbing or doing something, I would always run the other direction. I'm the white guy. I know <laughs> cops aren't going to stop me from walking down the street alone. Like, yeah. And yeah. so I was consciously separating from them when that is horrible to think of now that I was kind of leaving them behind, but it was self-preservation and right, we were doing right. bad things. And even today, I can drive around here in West Oakland with a broken windshield and a busted taillight, and I'm white. I, that, I can keep it like that for two years, 
never going to get pulled over. If I didn't signal the proper distance from an intersection as African-American, I'm getting pulled over and checked out. So yeah, like, yeah. it's so important to be aware of that. But I don't think, even with my personal experience and closeness, I still can't really feel what that's like. So I just of have to of course. keep remembering it and, uh, and but, honor it. But you approach it like a member of the community, regardless of, I mean, you're aware of what your color is. And that you're aware that you can forget it, you know, like that you can free. We have the the opportunity to forget our color. Which, I think I might also go out of my way to tell them that I'm uh, Italian and Sicilian, <laughs> and I'm a Taroni. I'm a work, I work with my hands. You know, this right, is right, like right. it's kind of a very slightly similar thing. If you're in Italy. And you're in Northern Italy and you call someone a Taroni, you've just insulted them like saying the N-word here. But oh, if really? you're in Southern Italy and you're with your friends and you're a Taroni, you're, you're part of that. You're part of that. You're like, cool. Yeah, yeah. You know? And I, mean, I don't know if that I just really think plays like, through here, but. I mean, eventually, I'm really hoping color just does not matter anymore. You know, like, because there, there's not like a homogenous white community. Like, I, I am every time I hear like especially recently I hear people talk about the average Trump voter they describe me they're like non-college educated whites like oh god that's the, <laughs> technically I, I am one of those but like I have no interest in voting you know like I don't yeah. support Donald Trump I think he's a horrendous pile of dog shit that's insulting to dog shit but like I you know that that demographic I, I land there you know like but I, I think eventually that should not matter because there's not a homogenous thing of white people. Black people are not homogenous. You know, there's the whole spectrum of expression. Human, we're just human beings. And of course, the culture you grew up in, the community you grew up in, the color of your skin, those have shaped culture and have shaped our, our world and shaped people's, you know, impressions of themselves and each other. But eventually it's just got to not matter. Ah uh, man, I I I long for that day. I don't know how uh, to get there, but it, <laughs> I have I wear a T-shirt that says "Non-Judgment Day is coming soon." But the <laughs> the truth is, I think we're a long way away from yeah. really dealing with that issue. Well, and part of it is like some judgment is a little funny. You know what I mean? Like there. If it weren't for judgment, you wouldn't have Larry David. You know, yeah, you wouldn't yeah. have like certain yeah. things that are funny, objectively. I think objectively. But funny. the labels are also, I think, somewhat uh, not so useful. I was no, just sure. listening to a Joe Rogan podcast with the CEO of Whole Foods, and yeah. Joe Rogan asked him, like, why do you think um, intellectuals have written, you know, disparaging thing about business through the years? And, and his answer is, well, you know, intellectuals, they spend a lot of money on college and they have all these degrees and all of a sudden somebody comes up and didn't do all that and then they attain a massive business success. And so these guys are just jealous. And I'm thinking, well, what makes, does going to college make someone an intellectual? I mean, I've read thousands of books. I love books. I read books and I study things and, yeah. but I dropped out in the eighth grade. So am I not an intellectual? I'm certainly not jealous of these, of the CEO of Whole Foods and all the money he has. And I still think sometimes businesses pull some bullshit, yeah. you know, and do some bad things. So couldn't the reason that 
people are writing bad things about businesses because business is always not behaving ethically? Isn't that just a slight possibility? Yeah. It's not just jealous intellectuals? And, you know, people people tend to... Uh, you judge the other. We otherize each other. We're, we're, we're just a tribal creature. Yeah, I think that's we probably tell, true. You know, we just... Any, like, how many different cultures have called themselves, like, the human or the human being or the real people? Like, the name of their tribe, that's what the meaning is? Like, oh, mm. we're the people, and then anybody who isn't one of us is, well, they're not yeah. one of us, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. I think that's, a, like, an old thing that's in our code as a as a creature that we, we band together and we make these little associations. And we do it unconsciously with things, like non-college educated whites mm-hmm. or whatever it is that you identify with you know like intellectuals or non-intellectual whatever it is that you de- identify with you just otherize the things that don't fall in there so you think that's a human trait rather than maybe a a, a, a uh, negative byproduct of civilization and social structure i think it is our social structure undermining and exploiting that natural predilection towards banding together Mm, mm. you know what I mean it's not like it's overtaken us because it it overpowered us Mm. it just it took advantage of our weaknesses rather Mm -hmm. than overpowering our strengths Mm. I think that's the way a lot of shit works it's not that that one thing is overpowered by another I think often one thing is undermined by another which is a subtle difference but it it, it, I don't know it matters in some context and I think in this one it does like I feel like, to a certain extent, these are manufactured controversies from the owners. I call them the owners. <laughs> the owners. <laughs> I, I, even though I don't even call the politicians the owners. The owners are above the politicians, sure. right? Whoever makes these decisions. And it's important for them, for mm-hmm. us to vilify. You know, if say yeah. you're, say you're a liberal or progressive, and you uh, you have to vilify Trump supporters. My Italian family in New York, they're all hardcore Trump supporters and yet I love them and I would do anything for them I'd take a bullet for them so like how are we really that different because of the subtle differences that this whole construct highlights to keep us from banding together and doing what's right for our society totally you know earlier you were talking about something um, that made me think about um, going back to trees like the communication of trees you know, um, like, what is it that a tree would really need to communicate to other trees, you know? And you, you mentioned something about our a lot of our systemic problems as a culture, as a society, are that our, we don't nurture correctly, right? We don't, mm, yeah. like, young people miss out on some sort of nurturing aspect. And I have no children. I have no idea how this works. Yeah. But as, as a dumb uncle... I can uh, talk about this, but like the the idea that maybe we're not nurturing property. Well, what is a tree? What is a band of trees or a, a ring of trees talking to each other about? Like, if one is nutrient deficient, well, they can through the mycelium make sure that the tree that is nutrient deficient gets a little bit extra, mm-hmm. right? They can nurture, and that that whatever that dialogue is between these creatures is about that. Right. Yes. I would imagine. I mean, I don't. I have no idea. Please forgive me if you're listening in, Tree. But I, I, I mean no harm. But I feel like that would be the most 
important thing to nurture to nurture the ones around you yeah yeah uh, and to share the the resources of the soil and like <laughs> we're talking about these you know the other rising and the you know the polarization and these manufactured constructs that we deal with like yeah they don't we, have that they don't the, the trees it, don't have that problem and if they do if they do it's like you know like an oak and oaks leave some certain oaks like nothing else grows around them because their leaves put shit down in the soil that nothing certain else can trees grow. yeah walnut and eucalyptus are the most notable ones that just overtake whatever area they're in and nothing else is coming. well they're they're called allelopathic which means their allelopathy is where well in the case of trees allelopathic trees secrete something akin to plant growth hormones from their roots Hmm. which discourages other plants from growing in that soil so it's not like they're toxic or they're poison but they're actively you know kind of stay out yeah we don't want you growing here yeah get off my lawn yeah yeah Yeah. that's that's interesting it's funny because my one of my areas of expertise in trees is in young tree development Hmm. but it's different because in an urban forest often you have a sidewalk and you have a cutout opening and the tree is isolated in this you know this space yeah and it comes from the nursery i know you said 10 years old but you would be surprised it's probably five or six years old it's six feet tall it's a it's got a trunk of about this diameter and it can't stand up on its own if you put it in the ground and didn't stake it generally going to fall over in in a high wind so when I began realizing this, I, I actually went to my, I was in night school at the time studying arboriculture and nice. horticulture. And I, I, I was describing it to my professor <clears throat> where I was seeing these trees that had these very stout tree stakes and they were still really, really thin, but right where they poked above the tree stakes, where the wind had been shaking them around, the trunk was almost double the thickness. So I began researching and really developing a way of staking trees that allowed them to sway in the natural breeze more. And so instead of them being helping one another like they may, might do in the or in natural forest, uh, I was trying to develop systems to allow them to use nature to strengthen themselves and anchor themselves into the ground. And my professor hooked me up with someone from UC Berkeley Cooperative Extension and then a professor in Davis who turned out to be the guy that wrote the textbook I was studying in arboriculture. And he got some grant money to test my tree staking device against the other standard available tree staking methods. Needless to say, I invented this tree staking device and spent ridiculous amount of my own money, and I never had any success with that. But I feel lucky to have gotten a patent, and I really, the study four years later showed that my trees actually did better. Really? And I won't go into detail about why. Uh, it failed, but part of it's because I'm just not a very good businessman. I, I really feel like I developed a better mousetrap. But the trap. proof of concept. 
worked. It worked. So, and so what was the the idea that let it sway to a point of tolerance and then exactly because it stimulates the anchoring. It stimulates growth and really the thickening the trauma. of the thickening of the trunk, the anchoring of the roots, all this really? movement. And humans are like that to a certain extent. If you have just the right amount of stimulation, you can really excel but you know too much adversity which is not enough support and the tree blows over so there's sort of a balance between helping something and not holding it so rigid that it can't move and develop i don't know there's some kind of meaningful lesson there that i haven't (laughs) quite figured out but it seems like people are like that as well they they need some stimulation and maybe a little adversity to kind Mm. of bring out the best that is very interesting. That's why people have podcasts, because they feel like they're going to figure this shit out. There's no telling if they will. Perhaps that's true. We got a visitor? No, just somebody dropping mail. Oh, okay. A little dog. Um, no, that is fascinating to me, the idea of like strength through failure and all that sort of stuff. Well, yeah. you know, it's... Um Adversity, overcoming adversity is a very powerful thing. Sure, you know, sure. like uh, I think yeah. some of my own motivation was, yeah, I'm a high school dropout, and yeah, I work just, you know, the hardest, most dangerous, craziest job, but I'm going to succeed no yeah. matter what. And no matter that, you know, my father didn't want to have anything to do with me as a, ever, really. You know, he 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 went to prison actually when my mom moved to Berkeley. She came to Berkeley to be with other single-family parents who were trying to sort of do a commune-like help each other raise children sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And my father was doing five years for some kind of truck heist that, uh, you know, I, I, I asked him many years later and he goes, Hey, this guy, he said, Mike, I got a truck over here. You want to drive this truck over? I got to drive it from here over to there. And you know how to drive a truck, right? And so my dad drove the truck and got, you know, pinched. And maybe he got five years because he didn't say anything. You know, that's right, how that right. sort of lifestyle was. But Where in Brooklyn were they from? Uh, my various places, but uh, Williamsburg kind of area for the most part. I was actually born in Manhattan, but we were living in Canarsie at the time and then... It's just a little bit of moving bit around, of but world, uh, yeah, I, I, I haven't been back there since after it just started really gentrifying, and like I hear it's out of control, like high so, rent district now. Yeah, we were there like seven years ago. I used to live in Sunset Park. Oh uh, wow! Like just the next little neighborhood south of Park Slope, which was beginning to gentrify when I was there twenty years ago. Where I lived was not gentrified, and then yeah. Tiffany and I visited. I don't know, seven years ago, and it was unbelievable. The changes. Like, holy shit. Br- Brooklyn was just as expensive as a lot of Manhattan. Yeah, Pretty and wild. actually, there's there's some parallels to West Oakland. I was going to um, say, you've, you've seen, you're watching that happen. Yeah, uh, it's still funky and cool right now, but the condos are popping up, and the hoity-toity restaurants are starting to pop up. Speaking of which, where we are sitting right now, which we have not talked about yet. Yes, that was is, a good lead-in. Is a sort of thing that like. All right, well, so just tell me what, what's the name of this place where we're okay. sitting. Okay, 
So we are sitting in a, a, essentially a full city block, sparing a row of houses or businesses on, on one of the side streets that uh, is called O2 Artisans Aggregate. And it's, sort of, a, it's sort of a clumsy name. And the reason it's called O2 is because before it became this funky little craft people um, workshop kind of zone, it was an oxygen factory. And so uh, <clears throat> there was uh, commercial oxygen, and it, it must have been a huge plant because the oh, tanks that are still on site are gigantic, yeah. and uh, they were using the whole facility. And again, it's, it's like a whole city block. Yeah. And <clears throat> my mentor, the guy that built this space here and that, uh, that started this little community, is a Japanese woodworker who at the time was doing a very big building project for a billionaire who will remain unnamed. But uh, the site was primarily used as a staging ground for all these giant timber frame, Japanese style mortise and tenon beams to build these gorgeous traditional Japanese homes um, in, a, in a nearby 10 acre compound um, and I think it was just so much space that he just started renting out parts of it to other people and at the time it was just blue collar workers, plumbers welders, craftspeople. but the place has sort of evolved into this eclectic mix of different tradespeople, and we're right in the process of sort of formalizing a community that I'm not sure if it's going to be a nonprofit or a collective or a cooperative or whatever the structure is going to be, but the intent is to keep this as an affordable place for makers and craftspeople yeah. and food makers and you name it to be able to work despite the fact that, you know, the property values are soaring around and, right. and things are changing so quickly. So, it, 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 yeah, stones throw from where we have someone doing, uh, you know, welding and metal fabrication and woodworking, and even one of the businesses on our zone here makes edible snacks out of crickets. Uh, we have a, a really beautiful Japanese restaurant making homemade soba noodles and a wood-fired pizza oven and local foods being brought for lunch and pop-ups and you name it. So. We're just kind of trying to keep this as a oasis of West Oakland totally. funkiness and coolness it and not funky and cool for sure. And not go that route. Yeah. I, I noticed, I mean, you showed me, Tiffany and I came here a few weeks ago and you showed me, uh, you gave us some incredible soap, which we still like and yes. use. Um, made from wood ash or like what no what they do is they come to our job sites where we're cutting trees with their own brush chipper and they grind up the cedar or redwood or pine or whatever they they put it in these giant vats and they steam it until all the moisture comes out of the foliage and a thin layer of really high concentrated tree oil yeah. which they use to scent their amazing soaps and lotions so and good. perfumes and candles and yeah. you name it yeah. yeah so we saw that we saw people making sake we saw a guy making um biofuel and converting diesel engines to run on cooking oil close to my heart we saw a guy making uh dog food 
mm-hmm, or like mm-hmm. pet food additives. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen compost operations, gardening operations, lots of restaurants. And in your place, which is, I think, probably the larger of the operations here, where you're milling all this stuff and making, you know, making things that people could turn into furniture and, and uh, you know, cabinetry and, and countertops yeah. in their houses. Yeah. So it's a, it is a very, very cool place that from the street, if you just looked at it as you're driving by, it looks abandoned. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. look like it's functioning. But when you come <laughs> in, it's like clearly, it makes me think about like... Um, the modern ruin. I spent some time in Bombay Beach, uh, which is near the Salton Sea, hmm. with uh, a, a guy named Tao Ruspoli and a couple of his friends, who have like, like, do you know about the Salton Sea? I know of it. it it's the largest inland body of water in California, mm. bigger than Lake Tahoe. It's massive, but it's not very deep, mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm. made by accident. Mm. Uh, there was an, an accident uh, back in the twenties or whatever, where like the entire contents of the Colorado River dumped into this ancient basin that would, was at one point a seabed, 200 feet below sea level, mm. just south of Palm Springs in, in the desert. The whole river dumped in there for a couple of years until they, uh, like a dam project went wrong or something. Anyway, so this, you know, people thought, well, it's kind of nice. We got this big lake, stock full of fish. Let's make it Palm Springs, but with water. And they, you know, the Beach Boys would play there. You know, once it got developed, it was swinging hip, cool yeah. place. But then, of course, you know, um, it failed because there was no water coming into it. it and just the only got water stagnant. That, the only water that did come in was like agricultural runoff, and it, you know, you'd have these fish die-offs of like ten thousand fish in a day everywhere i mean just like it reeked i it think toxic. i drove by it's smelly now isn't it It, it? certainly it's, can be it can, okay. there are some days when it's just horrendous but the, all these communities that were there these big like you know gridded out places that were um you know there were bars and restaurants and homes and things that's still there like and crumbling and decay of its previous mm. you know magnificence but what's happening now is all these artists and because it's such a cool backdrop you know mm-hmm, what i mean like mm-hmm. even just like your casual instagram model wants to go there and photograph herself <laughs> grinning relentlessly into this you know this decay but the the bigger picture is that all these like creatives and people who make stuff and try to do creative shit have found these ruins to build upon because it's such a hip canvas you know mm-hmm. and that I think is this like this canvas is really you've got a lot of freedom here you have a tremendous amount of freedom yeah. you have something that's otherwise like like the trees that you're dealing with would be trash you know that you're you're building into something yeah functional and beautiful and useful and my friend Tao uh, he's Italian <laughs> and was talking about um, the like the sheer arrogance of anybody who's going to go to like Rome and be an architect like how yeah. How arrogant do you have to be to like, you know, you're among these ancient, beautiful, incredible buildings and you're going to like design buildings. Come on. He's like, but you know, in a place like America or especially in like the Salton Sea, you've got this blank canvas upon which you can paint, you know, and you, yeah. can, you, you can be bold and do these things without, you know, being under the weight of the incredible shit that's been built before you. Yeah, And you're, I feel like you're doing that here, even though like, you know, the oxygen plant, I'm sure was monumental monumental task to yeah, make yeah. that business and sell oxygen to hospitals and whatever. You know, they had a big thing happening here, but when that finally shrank 
instead of turning into a ghost town, this thing is, mm. I mean, you're employing five, six people yeah. and yourself and you, you've got all this other stuff happening. I mean, we're in such a unique environment in this moment. I, know, I mean, I know you're here all the time, but like yeah. you and I sitting in this room, I'm, you're flanked by bonsai trees behind you. Yeah. Like, you know I mean? Like everything here is wood and cool and handmade and like uh, in the seat of a ruin. And that gives me some kind of weird, perverse hope. Not optimism, but hope for whatever is going to come after all this corona, our, our, our own degradation of our environment and our, our stupid bickering amongst each other of you know things that seem unsolvable and, God forbid, this homeless crisis. There does seem to be something hopeful about this place. And that you can take ruins and give them some other kind of life. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I call it the playground because I, we come down here and we work, but we're having fun. And everybody on this property is doing some cool stuff. So yeah. we're all socializing and sharing our ideas and equipment and resources and waste byproducts. And, and, uh, and yet the planning is more like a Fellini movie than some kind of like planned, like, <laughs> you know, you've got this incredible Japanese structure oh, next yeah. to a modified shipping container right. that's uh, right. somebody's like brewing illegal spirits in or something. And, you know, it's a <laughs> it, it, it runs the gamut. Yeah, man. Well, look, I know I know you've got other stuff to do. You're you're kind to talk to me for all this many. It's been uh, a pleasure, really. Many minutes, but um, where? How can people find out more about this place where we are right now? The O two. So O two A A dot com is O two A A dot com is the easiest way. Just like to, O or zero. zero uh, o is in oxygen. O two. Yeah. O two A A, and and that lists all uh, most of the businesses uh, we haven't updated it there's probably three or four new craft people right. that have moved in that haven't uh, maybe closer to 10 i mean we really we're growing with a lot of new little tiny yeah. craft people popping in here uh but the website gives you the overview and says some nice things about yeah. uh, uh what we do and and lists the businesses and then and i'm in my company is Ponderosa Millworks, which is an offshoot from my tree service. And, mm -hmm. and we do just mill logs and sell slabs, but we also make fine furniture. So mm -hmm. we, we, but mostly just because someone comes in and buys a slab and tells us how they what want they it want. finished. So yeah. it's really very targeted custom furniture for the individual yeah. or shelves or counters or right. benches and, and anything else we can make out of wood. We, yeah. we, we give it a go. Well, man, I'm I'm enamored of what you've done and what you're doing. I'm looking forward to learning from you. I know we've, we've talked about like kayaking and woodworking and all these things that we've got some intersecting interests. So when you're feeling more spry, yeah, you gotta thank you, man. come here and and kayaking is probably a a good thing to do. It's it's not super high energy, but you definitely need to be well yeah i gotta get my shit together i'm working yeah. on that man it's well day by your day body thing. will take care uh, of it look man just planting trees all day that ain't easy yeah uh, i feel good having it you know worked myself but like you've that, got so. good karma for doing that so <laughs> well, thanks man we'll continue another time all right thank you very much